0: So let's pray about this before we begin, all right? Holy Spirit of God, we do come today to look at who you are and how you lead us, how you direct us, how, Spirit of God, that you are indeed a spirit that is from Jesus, that indwells us, that the Father has sent to us. And as we look at this today, Lord, we ask your guidance that you will show us something new, that you will help us understand more clearly this part of your Trinity. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So this week we are on, and we're continuing, we're back on the Apostles' Creed. Last week Jack did Judgment. For those of you who missed, I think we planned that specifically because we were right at the time where we lost an hour's sleep, so if we were dozing, it, it was a good excuse rather than just, I don't want to hear about judgment, it's way too hard. But today, we're, we are looking at um, the Holy Spirit, and there are six words in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in the Holy Spirit. We're done. So... It's a shortest statement about um, the Trinity. The Apostles' Creed does tend to focus on Jesus and the work of Jesus, but it's important that we understand that the Apostles' Creed affirms the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So as we begin to look at that, we're going to start with uh, John 14. And John 14 is part of the Upper Room Discourse, So Jesus has brought his disciples together. He wants to talk to them and assure them of not only what is coming, but ultimately what's going to go on. So Jesus has been there. He has held their hand. He has both sent them out, brought them back, talked to them, equipped them, um, discipled them, mentored them, and now he's headed for the cross. Now he's told them that that's what's going to happen. And I always think about progressive revelation, like, yes, you know that. It's almost like if you have... um, a child or a spouse who's being deployed and they keep telling you, I'm going to be deployed, I'm going to be leaving, or even a business trip. And I know many folks in this church, male and female, travel a ton on business and they're gone like a, a week at a time. But somehow we're never quite ready. We're just never quite ready. And so you prepare that, you get that all together, and, um, and then they're off. But Jesus is telling them, you're right, I'm headed towards the cross, but I will return to you. And I'm headed toward the cross, but you don't have to live in fear. You can live in faith. And so the upper room discourse, uh, Jesus is talking about all those things that go on. It's chapters 13 through 17. And the room in which Jesus gathers his disciples um, and is set for them is the same place that he washes their feet and has the Lord's Supper. Now, just an aside for you, the word when he sends the disciples out, he goes, go and find this person and tell him that you need to rent a room in, in his inn for us to meet. That is, the I-N-N is not the same word used for Joseph and Mary when there was no space for them in the inn, it's a different word. Joseph and Mary were in a home, um, probably having to live in what we might call the living room or family room or the entrance room of a household because the upper rooms didn't have space for them. But it wasn't the kind of inn that you and I think about and the manger is not nearly as romantic as we paint it. But this is a different inn. This is a, a, a place where you actually would rent a room and it was not uncommon to rent spaces for you to have your Passover meal. If you were, especially in, when you're coming to Jerusalem which is what people would do during the Passover time, you need to find spaces to have your last supper. So he's with them. In there, he's modeled for them what what does it mean to be my disciples, go and do likewise uh, in the washing of of feet of others. It's not a sacrament for us for fear that that's the only thing we might ever do is just wash feet, which is not a great thing that you really want to do anyway. But then, okay, I'm one and done rather than have the attitude of here I am serving. However, baptism, baptize um, those who believe in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's very much a directive. And then the Lord's Supper, do this in remembrance of me. So there is formula for the way in which we celebrate the sacrament of Lord's Supper and baptism. But Jesus has given them instructions with serving other people and having the community together. And then he begins to tell them what's happening next. So this is in chapter 14. um, And uh, many of us are familiar with the first part. We'll look at that in a few minutes. With this whole chapter, he does this. He, he has a promise that he's going away, but he's coming back. I'm going to prepare a place for you. I will come back and be with you and, um, and take you into myself. He is um, telling them about the spirit of truth, and that's what we're looking at today, that will be indwelling them, that will not leave them, kind of as orphans out there. He's talking to them also in this chapter about his resurrection and return. And again, the assurance of the presence of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with them. And then Christ's peace that will be with him um, and his return to his Father in heaven. So boy, is that chapter packed. Now we're just going to look at the three verses, but put everything, it's so important, put it in context um, so that as we work through this, it makes sense to you. Okay, so beginning... And 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, the first thing I want you to do is think of that word, if. And what happens with that is it becomes, for so many people, almost like a works theology, like if I really work hard, if I'm doing the right thing, then I'll be able to do this. The word is better translated, when you are loving me, it is not a contingency, but it is a statement about an ongoing relationship. When you are loving me is a way in which you can look that. You obey my commandments. And um, this, the word will also can be better understood in the form of um, future tense. It, you will, it's ongoing rather than this is an imperative what you should be doing. Does that make sense? So that it's not like, well, if you're really good, you, you should be doing these commands. Rather, when you are loving me, when you are loving me, you will be continually doing the commands that I've given to you. What is that command? To love God, to love others. So there's an assurance that he's giving to them here. And oftentimes, people do not see it that way. They think it's, wow, I just really, oh man, am I loving Jesus? Am I doing the right thing? No, it's, a, it's an assurance. It's a confidence that Christ has and his disciples, when you are loving me, then you will be um, living out those commandments that I've given to you, okay? And then the commands of Jesus calls them to, one, to be loved, and we see that in John 13, 8, that um, we are loved. We love Jesus by believing in Jesus. So we experience love when we begin to understand and believe it. So if you have people who have been hurt or beat up they are not really willing to uh, love easily. You know, every time I love someone, I get hurt. I actually grew up with this thinking, boy, everybody I love, I lose. So I'm, I'm really not sure I want to keep loving people. But it's the idea that when you begin to love, you really believe in love and what love can do. And Jesus is loving us first, and we believe that love, we experience that love. So that's a confidence that he gives to us. And then love others is also demonstrated in John 13, with the washing of his disciples' feet, that, um, you know, my fair lady, show me, that great song that she sings, that, you know, don't do this, show me, if you really love me, show me kind of thing, and so as we love other people, we can't help but demonstrate that. Now, Rick's love language for me, and this is my new word using love language, it's not flowers and candy, folks, it's um, he fixes things for me. (laughs) And so the button in the garage, when I'm getting out, I kept pressing it and it was not closing. Our garage is underneath our house on the left side, and we don't get to, we have to walk out of the garage and up the steps. We actually thought about putting an elevator in and stuff like this. And I thought, honey, for 30 years we've been able to do this, let's just keep doing that. So that's what we do. But the button wasn't working well. So then Rick went and he ordered a new button so that I can hit the garage door when I'm leaving to go up. Um, up to the sidewalk and into the house, and, um, and that was, that's his love language for me. And then he thought I needed it to be lower, so then he just moved it so it was lower, but unfortunately my hands are like moving through the mechanisms of the garage door, um, door itself, you know, like the hinges, to hit that button. It doesn't give me great confidence. So I went back and he goes, did you like where I put the button for the garage door? And I go, no, not really, sweetheart. <laughs> but that's his love language. That's, I, you know, that's the loving that I see from Rick. That's how he acts that out. He got me a really cute um, movie, Pixar movies. They're all the little animations you see before the movies, and um, the real movies. And we just love those. And that, that's kind of Rick's lo- That's the way he shows me he loves me. And it works for me. It works really well. He also, you know, I have a long list of honeydew him every day, and that's our love language. There you go. I'm sure some of you understand that perfectly. Um, But it's wanting to love, and then um, it's it's experiencing that not as one of commands to do it, imperative, but one as an outcome of our love for God, and therefore a love for other people. So Jesus is affirming that. Um, Our love for Jesus compels us to do for Jesus and for others. All right, so that's just that first little verse. And then Jesus um, goes on to say this: And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another advocate to be with you forever. So Jesus is not only saying, Okay, you know I'm going, I've told you I'm going, Um, continue to love as you've experienced that, continue to give that to other people. And you won't just have to do this alone. I'm sending you an advocate. And he promises to send the counselor. Now, the word here in Greek is paraklete. And paraklete means to, um, para means alongside. And uh, kletos is called. So the advocate is one who is called alongside. not a great? I mean, that's just like such a technical kind of, they're called alongside. It's used advocate here. Many names that are used, um, the English translates it as counselor, as advocate, as helper, as comforter, and Dale Bruner, who um, wrote a commentary on John and also on Matthew um, on those Gospels, loves to use it as a true friend, that the Holy Spirit is that true friend. And I think, wow, that's a great word for that that the advocate for us is the true friend, one who is there, who is with us all the time. And you'll know it, a true friend when you get in trouble and who's left standing with you. Um, I have some stories. I wish I had my friend here. Our um, daughter could get into a bunch of shenanigans. And so the question is, are, do you, are you fight, flight, or freeze? So Corinna got... Um, caught for something one time, and uh, I think it was for being out after curfew, and she had a couple of girlfriends over, and um, so the police come knocking on the door, and Corinna wants to take them on, (laughs) because she's a Farley, I guess, I don't know, so she goes to take, she goes, so she's the, you know, the kind of the fight person. The other two girls are, have just disappeared into thin air, just not there at all. And um, fortunately, Rick is bigger than Corinna, so he went to the door and everything turned out okay. But oftentimes when we get in trouble, we know our true friends because the ones who are true friends are going to stick with us. And the others kind of hide, like, well, wait, where did, where did they go? And um, so you, you get that, but here's the promise of the Holy Spirit who's going to be there and, um, and help, us, help us get through that, our true friend. And then verse 17 This is the spirit of truth, and truth is really important, folks, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him because he abides with you, and he will be with you. So Jesus identifies the advocate, the counselor, the true friend as a spirit of truth, and the truth is Jesus. Earlier in the chapter, Jesus said, when they're all confused, I'm going to heaven, and I'm going to prepare a place for you, and when I come back... I will take you into myself, and you know the way. And um, one of his disciples, uh, Thomas, whom we love um, because we identify with him, I think he's always asking questions. He never quite gets it. He's always a little bit skeptical. He goes, how can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. So Jesus is that truth. It is that Holy Spirit, that truth of Christ given to us the advocate, the true friend, the one who will be with us and testifies to that and, and um, indwells us. And we will, as, he, as it says here, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. And um, I kind of go back to not only experience it by what's going on, but seeing it. Oh, well, just show me. Just, I just have to see it to believe it. And once again, Thomas was the one who said, you know, show me your handprints, show me the wounds, show me, show me what happened so that I might believe. And Jesus said, better is one who, who doesn't see that and yet still believes. That's a Holy Spirit moment for us. The world will not get it. They just don't get the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is saying, don't make your standards by the world. They're not going to understand that They don't have the indwelling Holy Spirit. They don't have the Spirit with them. They neither see Him nor do they know Him. And again, when you testify to someone or about something, you normally are doing it because you know them. So if you have kids that are going to school or something else and they're saying, uh, and they need a reference, And um, this happens every once in a while where kids will need to go to school, and they will contact one of the pastors. And the scariest thing is when they say, will you please write a reference? We have no idea who this child is. (laughs) You know, and and, and we kind of see them maybe at their parents, maybe at, at, at one or two times during the year. But then you have a kid, like we have one who wants to do an internship, and her folks wrote and said, gee, can you help us out on any of this? And so... I, you know, rather than say, gee, I'm happy to be a reference for them. Boy, I just reached out to this nonprofit organization and said, Hey, this person wants to apply. I can attest to them. I know them. They're a lover of Jesus and they live out their faith to know. You when you know the Holy Spirit, you have that. But don't expect the world to get it for you. Okay? They're not. It's going to be confusing for them. And Jesus just kind of gives them that assurance because he knows that they're going to hit difficulty, and he wants him to know that. Um, but you know him because he abides with you, and he will be in you. So not only is that true friend alongside you, but he's also within you, and we have that guidance. Believers know the Spirit because the Spirit dwells within us. And the word here is you in the plural. So this is not something just unique, to one or two of us, all believers. And so when you get down to your questions later on, I'm going to let you cheat a little bit. In in the Old Testament, it was asked, and it was a great question. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come and go to the faithful in Israel, that God would empower prophets. uh, King David, don't let your spirit um, leave me, because the spirit was in Saul, and then the spirit left Saul. The indwelling spirit is for all of us, And it indwells in all those who believe. So it's not just, well, you know, the priestly, the really spiritual people have the Holy Spirit and the rest of us don't. The Holy Spirit indwells all of us and the word there is plural. So he's gone from kind of third person into first person plural. And he's going to do that again, we're going to see in Romans. So you have in this section, Jesus' assurance of them, don't worry because the Holy Spirit is going to be with you, it's going, the Holy Spirit will indwell you, um, the Holy Spirit is going to be present, helping you, and, um, and know that that's unique for those who follow me, okay? So now we're going to turn to Romans. Any questions on John? Okay. Okay. Romans um, 8, just the introduction, this section speaks about the ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit who dwells in believers, fulfills the law, and makes them righteous. The indwelling Spirit is proof of salvation and a promise of resurrection. The Spirit also gives witness that we are God's children. So now I get why we put John together and Romans together. They're just really big pieces of scripture to study. So I would have liked it in two weeks, but we'll do it right now. We'll just run through this. But the connection here is in Romans, and Romans chapter 8 is one of the most beloved chapters uh, of, of scripture and certainly of Romans. So if you're studying Romans, anybody going to the Monday night? Okay, so Monday night. So the first three chapters, if you survive the first three chapters of Romans, you're home free. Until you get to chapter 7. The first three chapters, all Paul does in the book of Romans is beat you up, just so that you know how sinful you really are. Most of us don't need help with this, but he's just making sure, because they've kind of gone astray. So literally, he spends three chapters telling you how sinful you are, and um, how separated. And then he tells you the good news, which is what we all want to hear, that in Christ Jesus, we are made new. In Christ Jesus, we are forgiven. In Christ Jesus, we can live out life differently. And then in chapter 7, he kind of goes back to talk again about um, our brokenness and our um, failure, truly, to be obedient to the law. There is no way that we can fulfill the law. God attempted that, and we just couldn't do it. Given our proclivity for sin we just couldn't obey that law. It's overwhelming. Just cannot do that. So chapter 8 gives us the hope that we can live our lives in victory, not because we're captive to the law, but because of something else. And I say that because in the very first verse of chapter 8, it reads this. If you look at that, if you turn to chapter 8 now, there is therefore, and that word therefore should always lead you back. Whenever you read Romans chapter 12, it does the same thing um, when it says therefore. And you're going, well, what was happening before that? Well, what was happening before that was Paul was talking about the law and sin and about our inner conflict, that we can't do what we want to do because we have this conflict within us. But therefore, because we have been given um, the grace of God, because we're no longer slaves to sin because of what Christ has done, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he said the same thing earlier, and the way in which he said it earlier in Romans 5.1 is that we have been justified through faith. So that's a positive way of saying um, you're free. You have been justified by faith. Um, and it's something that's been given to you. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So there's an assurance that he's beginning in this chapter to tell us that we have one, salvation, because there's no condemnation, and then secondly, salvation comes to us um, because through Christ, the spirit of life sets us free from the law and of sin and death. And that is truly good news because otherwise we live a life going, am I good enough or how can I change this? If we trust Christ's work on the cross and the Holy Spirit comes to indwell us, we don't need to live in fear of that condemnation. And for many of us, we just need to be reminded of that because we're forgetful. Um, It's kind of like I don't do very well with giving up things for Lent. I normally last about 10 minutes and then I go home and we have these wonderful... Um, Chocolate covered, dark chocolate covered cherries, or you know, so so, giving up anything for Lent doesn't really work well for me. It's easier for me to take things on, like trying to be kinder or something. But um, my sinful nature gets to me too quickly. But we have that assurance in Christ that we don't have to worry about that. And then in verse three and four, let's look at this. Just so fun waiting for my eyes to adjust. Okay, for God has done what the law, let me go back to two, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of a sinful flesh and to deal with sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Okay, so it gets a little difficult because what is spirit, what is flesh, and let's just look at that. God has taken the initiative, and that's the most important thing that we can think about. It's very reformed of us, but God initiates. We always have to worry about that. Like God is somehow bound and can't do anything until we decide to move to God. That is just not true. That God is forever pursuing us. Um, If you saw my near cardiac arrest on Sunday morning, the lamb has gone off and been lost. (laughs) And God goes out. That lamb didn't say, come find me. Jesus didn't hang in the, if you read that scripture, he didn't hang in the in the, what we would call bars or the eating areas or the, with all the sinners in the world because they necessarily, some invited him, but not always. He hung out there because he wanted to find them, because he wanted to be there. So God is the one who initiates this for us. And um, by sending, God does this. He provides it by, one, sending his son. He sends his son. This is his own son. He takes a sacrifice to send his son. Secondly, the divine son comes in, a human being incarnate. And here's one of the things. You have the Gnostics that just want the spiritual side, the spirit, it's there, but not really the flesh, because the flesh, as you're going to see, sinful flesh, it's terrible. But no, Paul wants to assure us that we have the presence of God, both divine and incarnate. The person of Jesus in the flesh, living as we have lived. It's really important. If you want, you know, if you want to understand someone, walk alongside them. If you want to know someone and what they're going through, you're going to need to sit with them and know them. God, in His great love for us, the law is not working. Sends His Son, who is fully divine, and also in the flesh for us. So He promises those two things, and then Tate sends the Son as a sin offering. Back to Old Testament, you would bring a lamb as clean and as pristine as you could. And that lamb would be sacrificed. But even as perfect as it looked, it was not enough. You'd always have to bring a new lamb. You'd always have to come back again for sacrifice. But Jesus is being offered once for all. It's efficiency in one sense. The efficacy of Christ's atoning work for us wants to be assured just in these few verses. The son is a sin offering and God judged our sin in the sinless humanity of his Son. So God looks at us through his Son, Jesus, who is sinless. And that's just, every time you get really nervous, boy, will God really love me, just in your mind, take the presence of Christ who indwells you through the Spirit and put that in front. Because Christ has died for us and has paid that price for us. So God no longer sees us or turns from our sin but sees us through Jesus. And um, then God sent his own son in order that the righteousness of the law is fulfilled in the spirit. Our new life is the fruit of the Trinitarian grace. So if you look back at these verses, you've got God the Father who sends his son, who does a work on the cross and gives us the Holy Spirit. That is a great Trinitarian grace statement right there. That this is a person of God expressed in the Trinity, God the Father sends his Son, divine and incarnate, to pay the price and sends us his Holy Spirit so we have that assurance. That's just a, a great, you know, get this verse down. This is a good, these are good verses to, to just know how God works and is present for us in that area. And then um, going on from 5 through 8, to get through these and then we can talk a little more. Um, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For this reason, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, Indeed, it cannot, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So the first thing, flesh, the sarka. so he's using these two terms. If you look even at your notes there, you have the uh, kata sarka, that is the flesh, and those who live by the spirit, that is um, the, the kata katanuma. And flesh is not, they're just not talking about, you know, flesh and bones, the sinewy. It's talking about our whole being. And again, Hebrew thought is that you never separate your mind, your soul, your intellect, your physicality. And you just don't compartmentalize that. It's all one. And so when talking about the flesh here, it's talking about our whole being. 80% of people who get ill have had emotional problems. Issues that normally go with that. And oftentimes it's a spiritual issue also. And and I want to be careful not to say, well, if you just clean up your act, you'll be healthy. There are things that happen to us. Sweet, sweet man in our church, cared for his wife who had Alzheimer's for many, many years and ignored his own health. And was gone five months later. His whole being he devoted to her. Good reasons, but it still can beat you up. That kind of thing. Who we are emotionally. If you don't have enough sleep, not only do you overeat sometimes, but you also have a tendency to get sick because you don't have what you're needed. So our whole bodies affect those things. And the children cannot learn well if they're hungry. That's just, that's none of us learn well when we're hungry, but especially in children give them food, so that it's a lot of the programs to start in school, a lot to break start, because they realize, boy, if they have food, they're much better. Again, poor Karina is such a subject of mine all the time. She has hypoglycemia, and she like turns into the Tasmanian devil without food. So I used to pick her up from school. It took me a while. I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer here to remember to bring her food when I picked her up from school so that I wouldn't physically think about kicking her out of the car. Um, I would get in the car and she would just start and she would be horrific. And I would like throw a piece of cheese back to her so I would go, eat this first, don't talk, stop talking, eat, eat, and it would change. But it does, all those things affect us. So when we talk about the flesh here, we're talking about our whole being. Our whole being is engaged in that. And, um, And so we have this worldview in terms of contrast what the flesh is, with that of the spirit. And um, the personal spirit regenerates and indwells believers. So it's that ongoing thing that we always have. Um, The Holy Spirit comes into our lives and continues to do a work. Now I'm just going to take another aside here because I love the book of Acts because it's kinetic for me. But it often talks about Those who would proclaim the word of God. So you start with Peter, Stephen, Paul, those are just a few examples, but even Aquila and Priscilla, they speak and and the words used, and then Peter getting up full of the Holy Spirit. And then Stephen spoke full of the Holy Spirit. It's almost like this the indwelling of the Spirit filling us up and speaking out for us. So I always think, well, what happens when we're not full of the Holy Spirit? What are we full of then? (laughs) But the point is, is to allow that Holy Spirit to always be working in you. And yes, there are times when you will feel the presence of the Holy Spirit differently than at other times. You will have an aha moment from God. And many of you can think about that. Just all of a sudden, it was so obvious or evident that the Holy Spirit was very much there. It doesn't mean the Holy Spirit is not there because you're not, you don't have that that feeling. The Holy Spirit is always there, but we see that Holy Spirit indwelling us, and at certain times, a real infusion of the Holy Spirit presence felt and known and experienced in us. It's different. The world doesn't get this. Where is our mindset? Um, the personal spirit regenerates re- and, and dwells us. Paul distinguishes between the mindset of living in the flesh, or living by the Spirit. So are we living with those things, the law, or are we trying to accomplish the law, or those things in our life that have nothing to do with the Spirit? We just, what's our mindset? Are we trusting the Holy Spirit living in us, giving us that confidence, so that no matter what we face, we have that confidence of the indwelling Holy Spirit? Don't be as a world that their mind is set on other things, have our mind set, on God who is indwelling us through his spirit. And um, so living by the sinful nature, that is the flesh, instead of by the spirit, cannot please God. So God is, Jesus when he's, um, let me go back, Paul, when he's encouraging them on the words of Jesus and what God wants for them, is saying, let that Holy Spirit not only indwell you, but lead you so that you're not living by the worldly standards, are by the mindset of what the world, but by Holy Spirit. Okay? And then in verse 9, again, he has in the first um, several verses, um, talking about general terms, and then in in the last part, he begins to talk much more personally, uses that you language again, and um, moves from the third person to the second person, and talks to the um, readers directly. So this is, the, you're, this is the love language to you. But you are not in the flesh, you are in the Spirit, since the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit of life is life because of righteousness. The Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through his spirit that dwells in you. Now these are really big words. These, um, the general terms shared now becomes personal terms. The Holy Spirit is not just out there believers, that's a great statement, but the believers are in you personally. The Holy Spirit is in you personally. You're not in the flesh, but in the spirit. And the spirit of God indwelling you is the spirit of Christ indwelling you. Um, The word if is used in verse 10 and 11. Again, it is not the contingent word that you're looking at here. Rather, it's a statement. If, as in certainly the case. Like, if you're a Farley, this is what you do. So we would tell her, sometimes they needed to be reminded of this. So on Sunday morning, when they did not want to go to church, (laughs) we are Farleys. And if you are a Farley, this is where we are on Sunday morning. Um, If you are... Um, uh, Farley. You have a genetic code to who you are. It's just who you are. If you are Christians, your genetic code is now the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's who you are. And so there's a confidence, not a conditional kind of thing that he's speaking to here in terms of, well, once you get that Holy Spirit, but rather because you are Christians, um, of course, this is who you are. So if you have this, you know you have the Holy Spirit, then this is how you live out your life. Then this is who you are. And um, it refers to having Christ in us. That is the life in the Spirit. And then a debt or obligation. If we continue to live by the Spirit, it is a righteous life. And here's where it gets a little tricky for us. We live by grace and grace alone. But out of that indwelling Holy Spirit we have an obligation to live the life of righteousness that is brought to us by the Holy Spirit so that we should look a little bit differently than the rest of the world. It's like that Holy Spirit indwelling us does give us an obligation to be directed and live that out with the Holy Spirit. The same way, if we go back to love, if you love someone, you're going to treat them a certain way. Am I right? The basic example, you know, if you have a puppy dog, you love a puppy dog. You're not going to abuse or misuse or not take care of that. And if you have a relationship with somebody, you're going to be engaged. There's an obligation, the covenant of marriage, there's an obligation that goes with that. A covenant of even contracts, those are certain things. But as the Holy Spirit indwells us, it is both the assurance of Christ in us and an obligation on our part to be faithful to allowing that Holy Spirit that dwells in us to guide us. And so Paul is just reminding them of that so that they don't fall back into that sinful nature. Again, remember he spends the first three chapters beating them up, not just, not, just reminding them that they, <laughs> that they are a fallen people that need redemption, and that comes through Christ. And so we have that uh, redemptive quality in us, and it's a life of spirit. And then the last verses... Um, The 14, uh, let me go through 12. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led, this is verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, It is that very spirit, bearing witness with your spirit, that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. If, in fact, we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. I love it all till we get to the last verse. We'll get there. All right. Five things that's in your paper. Let's just look at this together. Um, Or four things, excuse me. There are um, four assurances of witness of testimony. We are children of God. We are called to holiness. We are called the children of God. I mean, there's a, a, a belonging to who we are because we're called to children. We have freedom from fear in our adoption, so no longer do we live in the fear of the law that we cannot fulfill. We live in freedom. It no longer holds us captive, this fear in our lives. And oftentimes people revert back to that, well, I know God loves me, but can we just say God loves me? And if God loves you, that's that if statement that says, certainly God loves you, as God continues to love you, live in that freedom. You're given that freedom. And um, so we no longer have that fearful nature in us. We now call God Abba, that is an intimate, people say daddy the only time I ever called my father daddy, to be honest with you, is when he became a grandfather, and then he was big daddy. And if you met my father, that makes perfect sense to you. But there was an intimacy that I had with my father. I was so blessed. Very, very close to my father. Uh, closer to my father than my mother, whom I also love. But my dad, I, we just, I just was close to my dad. We did lots of things together. I just loved to hang with my dad. And he really was my Abba. He was my dad my father in heaven. And that same kind of relationship, Uh, for me, this is easy. If you did not have a good relationship with your father, and oftentimes, especially with men, they don't have good relationships with their father. This is difficult to get. But if you can imagine, what would it be like to have a father who loves you, who cares for you, who's there for you, who's your advocate, who has taken you on as their own child, done everything, Abba, Abba, Father. That's the description called here. That's the one given to us. And um, we are given an inheritance as heirs with Christ. So not only are we adopted, and oftentimes Old Testament, uh, Testament of the times, it often is um, even here uh, that the eldest son would get a larger portion than the rest I'm the youngest of foreign female. I would have been in a heap of trouble here. <laughs> but instead, it's this, we're all, we're all adopted by God, and we all have an inheritance. We're in that, that book of, here's who belongs to me. These are my children. And if you know folks who have adopted kids, um, they don't see them as anything as but part of their flesh and blood. I've adopted them. They are fully heirs with all the other children. If they had no other children, they are heirs with this. Just found out a story of, and I knew this, but it was good to hear the story again, a friend who, um, unfortunately, uh, his, um, child married, um, quickly and badly and had three kids very, very quickly, and then things just absolutely fell apart. Well, the grandparents took these kids on, and they have adopted them and are raising them as their own children. Now, this is a person who's older than I am, hard to imagine, I know, <laughs> but older than I am, and the oldest child is, I think, 11 or 12, many, many years. They're just their kids. Here are kids. People are going, wow. That's an amazing couple. Look, we have Sarah running around with us. But it was that adoption, that inheritance. And everything that they have will be given to those kids as if they were um, ones that they had birthed themselves. God adopts us, and we are heirs in that inheritance. And with that inheritance comes that last verse. We are people... Um, We are also assured of suffering with Christ. So if there was a number five in there, it would be the suffering with Christ. Christ is spoken about by many Christ followers in scriptures and in history. Uh, We are a people in process, folks. We are working with the Holy Spirit to um, live out life faithfully as believers. And we are people that we know we will struggle. And we will struggle because of of our faith we will struggle because life is difficult we are told that we leave that desires of the flesh in order to live obediently in the spirit the obligation willingly taken but knowing that suffering will occur he just wanted us paul wanted to remind them that because of your faith and Christ has suffered, we will suffer too. Now, we do not suffer the way Christ did for everyone and everything, but because of our faith, we also suffer, and people look to us, and oftentimes when things happen that happen to the whole world, you lose someone unexpectedly, or something's very, very difficult, and they look at you and it's like, well, Christian, how's that going? And the fact that you continue to live out your life in faith becomes a witness, and people will make fun of you. Just sat down. Our new youth director, get to know him. Riley is really great. And, um, and he's saying, you know, you can't just tell kids, you know, somebody who wants you to go and do something that's against um, your Christian faith, or come and play fun games at youth. I'd rather go, you know, smoke dope or something else over here. I mean, honestly, which one would they really rather pick? And if they don't pick the one, how much grief will they get? Um, if you were ever a believer when you were younger, your kids were and they decided to make good choices versus the bad, they could get really ridiculed with that. But that's nothing in comparison with some of those who suffer for Christ in areas that don't allow that. I have a student in um, a course I'm teaching, and he's from India, and the persecution of Christians and Muslims in India is huge. It's absolutely huge. When I've gone over there, listening to stories of people who, because of their faith, get beat up or taken out or don't get um, jobs or positions. In um, Egypt, when we were there, when you are applying for school, it could be a, an excellent school. And they, everyone on their license plate, I've sure shared this before, has an identity of whether you're a Muslim or a Christian they're, you're not allowed in Egypt to not have a faith, so pick one. Very interesting. Um, but if they say that you're a Christian or they ask your name or something else and they find out, you could be discriminated against. It's not unusual. We can expect suffering. That's part of what we can expect. Being willing to embrace it because we are empowered to handle it because the Holy Spirit indwells us. The Holy Spirit is about transformation. It's also about um, helping us be that presence of Christ for others. So along with being adopted, along with being heirs, we are also guaranteed that there is suffering, but we will be glorified with Christ as we continue to be faithful. So we may be the frozen chosen. We may not express that Holy Spirit presence the way other Christians that we know express it. But we have the Holy Spirit in us and we trust the Holy Spirit guiding us. Amen. Questions? We're all sinners, and we, but we, we just can't keep on sinning. Now that we are believers, does that mean we can just go on and keep on sinning and do everything we want? And he says, no, it doesn't mean that. So my question is, What about believers who live lives that are really filled with sinful living? Like, for example, say you continuously cheat on your income tax or you You continue to have affairs with uh, other people or things like that. Yeah, that's a really, really great question. We should be coming more and more like Jesus. You know, John Calvin, I'm paraphrasing this, would say, are you sure you know Jesus? Because nothing in your life really reflects that. I would, uh, and we're not to judge, but our lives should look differently. And the travesty of our witness is if we are cheating, and people who are both believers and non-believers know that. And they see that, wow. If, if that's being a, a Christian, I don't think I want to be a part of that. We have a sinful, we we're born into sin. We have a sinful nature. I make jokes about it, but I normally can get out of bed without sinning, and then it goes downhill from there. I mean, there's something I'm going to do wrong. You know, I, I would make a lousy Wesleyan because I, I actually don't believe I can live a perfect life. But, um, but hopefully um, less sin in my life as there's more presence allowing the Holy Spirit to live and work through me. So part of the thing that we have to do is if we're close to those people, is speak the truth in love. Um, And Matthew 18 has a great example, like when you're wronged, how you would go to someone. But also when you're grieving the Holy Spirit, I think it's important that we, in a very, very loving way, um, speak the truth in love. And Paul was trying to do that because there was so much freedom. You know, you had such a law and so much freedom in Christ that they just thought they could do anything. And um, and Paul was like saying, that's not the point. You know, um, though Luther would say, if I'm going to sin, let me, ab- sin uh, let me abound in sin so that I may be forgiven all the more. That's the grace part. But it is a changed life. That is the best reflection of how we know Christ indwells us, and it's not an insurance policy. You know, my brother um, uh, died 11 years ago, and right before he died, I went to see him. He was a, You all know this. My brother was not nice, um, was pretty abusive to me when we were young. Um, and so I went to see him, and um, it's probably a good thing he couldn't talk at that time um, In in some instances, but his cancer had gone to his brain. He could hear well. He could comprehend, but he just could not always make out the words. And I sat with him and I said, "See, I forgive you for everything you did to me when we were young. And they were pretty brutal things. And I love you. And God loves you. I forgive you and God forgives you. And God wants desperately a relationship with you. He loves you, Seeb. And I, I'll never forget the look on my brother's face. It, it's like the light came on. It's like he understood I'm loved by God and I accept that love. An entire 61 years of his life, uh, no, it'd be, yeah, by the time he held 62 years of his life, wasted in a real sense. That's what we don't want to do. We don't want to live our life so, so frivolously in sin that we waste what we could have in that loving relationship with God. And God will love us regardless. I think sometimes we're just desperate for people to say, stop doing that. Stop cheating. Um, and it's amazing. I've known people who have been um, up to a bunch of shenanigans. That's a good word for St. Patty's Day coming up. Um, and been in a Bible study and been absolutely convicted. And gone home and said, you know, I just need to come clean on this. So it's it's an interesting thing that as we study scripture, it should be changing us. But to do it in in love and, and, you know, whenever you're going to tell somebody else what their sin is, spend some time on your own, figure out what, okay, and just say, here's some things in my life that I control, that I really had to give up to God to make that right. And I love you, and I think it's probably eating away at you. And um, I may not like taxes, but I sure am happy I live in a country that gives me all the freedom in the world. And so... um, I pay those taxes. Not with joy, but I do pay my taxes. Yes, any other questions? Yes, over here. Yeah. The Holy Trinity and God were three separate but equal persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so when I think of the Holy Spirit being God mm-hmm. and you know, no less than the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit is indwelling in me, it's actually God that is within me. Am I correct? Yes, God in three persons, and that's why in that scripture in um, Romans, where the Father sends a Son incarnate, and that Son's Spirit dwells within us, Holy Spirit. So, in that sense, yeah, God. God dwelling in us. Now, we're not God. Be really careful with that. (laughs) But it's God's spirit that dwells in us and Christ's spirit that he promised to us and Holy Spirit that is our advocate. Do you see how those are both altogether and distinctive? And the Holy Spirit comes alongside, counselor, advocate, true friend, um, the indwelling spirit of Christ with us. And Jesus and the Father are one. It gets complex other than to say that we affirm Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that God promises indwelling spirit in our lives. So, yeah, that's reflective. I'm taking God with me when we think about that, or God indwelling me. Where is God taking me rather than where am I taking God? You know, where is God leading me um, to go, and how do I reflect that? I had two questions. I'm so excited. Thank you all. Okay, let me pray you out of here. Lord God, we do thank you for the time that we spent together. And Lord, I thank you for your spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Really fill us afresh. Melt us, mold us, fill us, and send us out into the world to be your people, bringing the good news of your gospel always. In Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen.